1: this is america changed forever from the cbs audio network i'm gil gross this week we're going to talk about the economy and COVID 19 with cbs news business analyst jill schlesinger
0: you know three months into this financial pandemic an astonishing number of americans are still reeling financially
1: former ohio state senator nina turner will talk about police reform from the perspective of a black woman who is the wife and mother of police officers The
2: first thought on my mind was, nobody better not touch my baby. I mean, that's how I felt, because I I don't believe in that either. Having bad law enforcement officers are bad for good law enforcement
1: officers. Two big and surprising Supreme Court decisions this week that will forever change business hirings and firings of gay and transgender people and may... And the fight against DACA.
3: All first-year law students take legal research and writing, and one of the very first things that we learn in that class is not to do things like cite the dictionary to the court for this very reason.
1: We're going to spend time with the CBS News Asian correspondent on how China is dealing with
4: its latest outbreak of COVID-19. Reopening risks reinfection. Asia, China were the canaries in the coronavirus coal mine.
1: America and the rest of the world is trying to reopen, and there are some positive signs as people go back to work, but there are also some big negatives, including companies that may not exist anymore, and things like business travel that may be... Well, as we like to say, change forever. And then there are new unemployment claims numbers. And let's get into all of that with CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Jill is also the host of Jill on Money, the podcast, and author of The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Jill, good to have you with us. How are you?
0: Good, thanks. thanks for having me.
1: Let's start with the unemployment numbers, which were a disappointment. An additional one and a half million workers filed for unemployment insurance for the first time last week.
0: Well, I think this is just an enormous hole that that we find ourselves in. And although, I will say that the hole is probably slightly shallower than we had thought to begin with. Does look like April was the worst of most of the economic data that we will get, but It's hard to really get out of this quickly when we've had such a sudden stop. Um, One of the numbers that I look at in these weekly jobless claims is the number of people who are receiving unemployment benefits, not just the number of people who are filing for new benefits. And that number a week ago was about 20.6 million. And now we get this week, this past week's, and it's 20.54 million. So it's just not a big change. In fact, most uh, sort of big economic projections are looking at an unemployment rate of probably as much as 9% by the end of this year. And to put that in perspective, we're at 3.5% unemployment back in February. So just February, it was a matching a 50-year low in unemployment rate. We spike up to 15, maybe as high as 20% if you look at the numbers in a slightly different way. And to be at 9% by the end of this year is still very high. Again, a big hole out of which this economy needs to crawl out.
1: Taking a look ahead at where we might be with employment, I imagine some of the fear are the businesses that still exist but may not soon. How do we factor all that in when we forecast what's ahead?
0: We we throw up our hands and realize that forecasts are just a guess, and they are educated guesses, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I think if you look at hospitality, you know, Uh, entertainment, tourism. I mean, I just wonder, is anyone ever going to go into a movie theater again? You know, those are the kinds of things that I consider. And, you know, it's interesting that when Powell called the pandemic an inequality increaser, I also think that the pandemic has become an accelerant to trends that have previously been established. So some of those trends you just discussed. It is really going to be hard for middle-of-the-line department store chains to Um, make a big move forward. Same thing for a restaurant or a bar. If you are teetering on the edge, uh, you know, it's unlikely you're going to come out of this and survive. Or, you know, in tourism, maybe Airbnb is going to be just fine, but it had to go through a period where they got rid of a lot of extraneous parts of their business. They then refocused, they raised money at a lower valuation, got much leaner, and they right-sized that business. For the new era that we are now entering. I'm worried myself about smaller businesses. The, The paycheck protection program can only do so much. If your business is down by 50%, you can't bring as many people on your payrolls as you once had. So all of these things are going to be shaking out, I think, probably for the next six months to probably another year
1: let me ask you a quick question if there is such a thing as a quick question about this about the role debt might play in this um,
0: that is an excellent question and it brings up the the viability of any company that assumes a pile of debt now um, you know it reminds me of Warren Buffett who who is famously said something I'm paraphrasing but you know when the tide goes out you see who's swimming naked well when you have a cataclysmic recession that occurs so quickly you find out which companies are carrying too much debt just like a household that carries too much debt and i think that the problem is that a lot of these companies were struggling even under good circumstances they were already under pressure the the lifeline in the debt market has been the federal reserve that lender of last support of last resort and the fed has gone out and bought bonds in the marketplace to try to buoy the market but it's such a curious situation for the Federal Reserve to be in because the Fed itself had warned that they did not like the idea of all of these companies Piling on debt, and that was during the good times. So now, instead of just letting these businesses fail, which I think some uh, investors and economists believe should happen, um, some of them are being artificially kept afloat by the secondary market because of the Federal Reserve's backstop. So it it doesn't necessarily mean that companies are going to learn a lesson anytime soon. So I think that it is one of those areas where. Um, it's common sense if you have a company And every dollar of earnings, of of every dollar of earnings, you know, half of it goes to debt. It's like having a big credit card bill. There's not a lot of room to do other things in your life. And for those businesses, if so much money is going to making a debt payment, you're not revamping your stores. You're not upgrading your technology. You're not upgrading your, your marketing. So this really becomes the ball and chain of a corporation, this massive debt. Load, And we will see many companies just get crushed under the weight of that debt.
1: Final question. Let's talk people in off the ledge and look at some bright spots. Retail sales are way up. Mortgages were back down to historic lows. Applications are at an 11-year high despite the unemployment. How many bright spots are we looking at here?
0: well i mean i love that retail sales report because it really gave you the up and the upside and downside of where we stand okay so retail sales were up a, a staggering number 17.7% in may they of course were down the previous month by almost 15% so we had worst month ever in monthly sales month over month then we had the best month ever month over month and inside of that report here's what we learned for example clothing sales, they were up 188% in May. That is crazy, right? I mean, how many t-shirts and sweatpants are people buying in their Zoom meetings? Okay. But they they were up. But put this in perspective, clothing sales are down by more than 63% from a year ago. So yes, the data is going to jump around and bounce around and there, there is going to be recovery, but just know Remember that gigantic hole that I was talking about in the economy? The retail sales report tells you a lot about that gigantic hole. Um, I I will say that, of course, there are some, like I'll take positive news. You know, I I had a, a family friend who used to like to say, we like good news too. So we like good news. It's good. I just don't want people to think everything's all set and done because we still have a long way to go to come out of this period of time. Jill
1: Schlesinger is business analyst for CBS News, the host of the Jill on Money podcast, and of course, author of The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Jill, always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having me. Good to be with you.
1: You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. It seems as if we report on an issue such as police reform that people are either on one side or the other, but that can be misleading because of the way we like to stage debates on talk shows and cable news. Many Americans are caught in between or conceding that both sides have their points, but unsure really what to do about it. Nina Turner is one of those people who doesn't fit that I can only see one point of view mold, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have strong opinions. Turner was an Ohio State senator and the national campaign co-chair for Senator Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign, a commentator for CNN and host of the podcast, Hello Somebody?, Also, of course, she's an African American. Now, before you take all of that and put her into a stereotypical pigeonhole, her son is a police officer and her husband is a retired police officer. Nina, good to have you with us. How are you?
2: It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: Let me go in another direction right at the beginning, because we just saw Juneteenth and you were also a history professor didn't have time to mention everything you've done. We'd have no time for the interview. But some people heard the word, especially in relationship to the uh, debate over President Trump appearing in Tulsa on Juneteenth. Can you explain what it is?
2: Yes, Juneteenth is also known as Freedom Day. It really is a recognition that some of the last enslaved people in our country did not realize that they were free until two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, which was, as we all have studied, was, was in 1863. And so it took two years for uh, enslaved people in Texas to know that they were actually emancipated, hence Juneteenth. And it is a celebration of one's freedom. In two years, some, some historians actually believe you know that the plantation owners in Texas knew that they that the you know about the emancipation proclamation but wanted to get some more work out of the enslaved african americans for that for that cotton harvest And so they kept it from them.
1: Okay, before we get to the specific issues of the police and the black community, and in fact, many minority communities in the United States, I'm just curious about something you mentioned at the beginning. Your husband is a retired officer. Your son is a police officer. Did they get any pushback from friends when they decided to go in law enforcement or mistrust from fellow officers when they joined the force?
2: No, not at all. My husband has always wanted to be... A police officer he definitely shared his stories with me about growing up and only seeing police when there were bad things happening. And he wanted to go and serve his community and show them that police officers are number one, good, trustworthy, and that they should come around when when good things are happening. And honestly it rubbed off on our son, so our son is second generation. And the same for him, no, no pushback whatsoever And really proud. You know, I'm proud of both of them. That is a type of public service. My family is a public service family and I'm very proud of both of them. But it's hard right now, especially for our son. My husband and I worry about him all the time. He is millennial. So he, you know, being a young black man in America is hard. It always has been. But he has that double hardness that he's going through being someone that is proud of the work that he does and, and understands that it is important to protect and serve the African-American community and by extension, all communities, but I'm especially saying the African-American community because the hurt is so deep, but also knowing that he has been racially profiled. He is a black man in America. And so it's really, it's, this is a very challenging time for our family. Because I, we worried about him anyway, but I, we especially worry about him now because there is a turning of the tide. And so while there are Law enforcement folks who have not done the right thing and a system that needs to be changed. There are good law enforcement officers, and we should want more young African Americans, more young uh, Latinx people, and even women to go into law enforcement. But in some circles, law enforcement is being attacked, and I do not support that, obviously.
1: Obviously, you're also in an interesting position with, say, your son, whether the story, the lead story in the news, is a black man being shot or a, an officer being shot. Yes. I mean, you have reason to fear on both sides of that.
2: Oh my God. get yeah. Let me tell you, when the protests started happening in Cleveland about two weeks ago, I received calls from my siblings. I'm the oldest of seven children. All they wanted to know was, was their nephew. Okay. You know, and it was same to me, is my son. Okay. I believe in a demonstration and protests and people exercising their constitutional right to assemble. But the first thought on my mind was nobody better not touch my baby. I mean, that's how I felt because I, I don't believe in that either. Having bad law enforcement officers are bad for good law enforcement officers. And we need people to speak up both in law enforcement and the wider community and not accept this. And the out, the, the outrage that we're seeing right now, it's just pent up. It's not just about what happened To Mr. Floyd, which was criminal, you know, many of us call it a modern day lynching, the coldness, the calculated way in which that police officer put his full force and weight on Mr. Floyd's neck with his hands in his pocket. He didn't even flinch for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And we need more in the law enforcement community to call out their own. They usually don't like to do that because there are repercussions and consequences. You know, there's a law enforcement officer who about 10 years ago, Gil, she Uh, Her last name is Horn. She stopped her colleague from doing a chokehold on a suspect and she was fired. And 10 years later, you know what I mean? She has been proven to be right. And so there is a consequence within law enforcement when you have officers who really want to do the right thing. And that's not right either. So we're talking about a system that needs to be in some people's minds and mind. We need revolution in that system. Minimally, we need reform. So, yes, I see it on all sides you know i see it from the black black people and our in the pain that they feel and i also see it by being the wife of a retired police officer and our son is in law enforcement right now and he is the right type of person to be out there to protect and to be and to serve and he puts his life on the line every single day
1: you talked about the culture and that's something that we've heard about again from both sides in the black community where the police are not trusted there's a much talk about among Young people, no snitch culture. Uh, Police also have that culture where good cops, as you mentioned, won't turn on a rogue cop because of pressure back at the station house or in the squad car.
2: I actually, before the end of my term, Tamir Rice was shot. You may recall that. That happened in 2014 in November. 12 year old boy on the playground playing with a toy gun. Somebody thought it was real. They called in. The voice seemed to be a white man. It was a white man. Called in and said, look, somebody on the playground. I think it's a toy gun. I'm not sure. Come. Police officers shot and killed Tamir Rice. Two seconds from, you know, their, their car didn't even come to a complete stop. Shot and killed this little boy. And the pain that was being felt in my community, I, I called Governor John Kasich at the time, and I only had a, a month, December 31st. That was going to be it for my term in the Senate. And I said, Governor, we got to do something about this. I don't want my city to erupt. I don't want the state to erupt. We have the power. We need to do something. I got to come and see you. And I did yeah, I went to see the governor and, and two of my colleagues, and asked the governor to create a task force to do something about this before people started to erupt. And we did it. And we had no incidences of violence in the city of Cleveland or in the great state of Ohio because we acted and we traveled this entire state. The governor wanted us to act quickly. And we and and people from all over state got a chance to voice their fears, their concerns. Like they had expression and they had people who were listening, people from all walks, not just politicians. We had activist types. We had business community. We even had law enforcement on there. And that stopped our city and our state from erupting. I say all that to say that power, people who have power have to hear the cries of the vulnerable, the cries of people who are saying that this we have been transgressed. And the African-American community has been saying this for generations, Gil. This is not new. This is a repeat
1: performance. Well, let me stay, before we get to the repeat performance, which I want to get to, let me stay with yeah. what you did in Ohio, because that's very interesting, yes. especially at a time when you know, the two political sides seemed to not want to pay any attention to the other side at all or concede that the other side had a point. You, a progressive Democrat, and John Kasich, when he was governor, a conservative Republican, worked on police reform together. So apparently it can be done. What, besides from having people talk and feel that their voices were being heard, what was accomplished?
2: Well, from that travel, traveled the whole state, the governor then signed another uh, executive order. So he put an executive order to create the task force. And then once the task force report was done, he created another, uh, he signed another executive order to create a commission for us to make real the the recommendations for the task force. So it was accountability and oversight. You know, Gil, it's all of the things that people are talking about now. We did accountability and oversight, community education, community involvement, recruiting and hiring. When we heard from people that it was important to hire from the community to diversify law enforcement and to put standards in. That every single law enforcement agency in the state of Ohio needs to have standards for the use of force and the use of deadly force. Those are just a few of the things. Um, the grand jury process came up. And just really proud of what we accomplished, training. And so now for the first time in Ohio's history, law enforcement agencies have have standards that they have to adhere to. And the majority of those law enforcement agencies comply. And you would say, have to say that we were at the cutting edge. This was before uh, what we're seeing now. Uh, we were we were there before the before the tide turned, so to speak.
1: How a white conservative and a black Democrat found compromise on police reform. Now there's more ahead with former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America, Change Forever. From the CBS Audio Network, I'm Gil Gross. We've been speaking to former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, an African-American Democrat who is married to a retired policeman and the mother of a current policeman. Defund the police is one of those phrases that has defined the debate in a, in a way that most people don't actually mean. And I take it you being in a police family don't mean take all of their money away and get rid of the police. Can Can you help us get through this? What does it mean to you?
2: It means a reimagining or just an imagining, because I don't think in this country we've ever reimagined the police. We need to imagine what policing could look like in the United States of America. It doesn't have to be the way that it is. What it's saying is take that money and invest in the community, invest in social services, the needs of the people, invest in education. We need wholesale change, starting with reform as a start but absolutely revolutionary change must happen in law enforcement agencies across this country to rebuild the trust. And that trust is gone, especially in the African-American community. And I don't believe that you can serve that which you do not love. And the whole premise that African-American community, particularly African-American males, are somehow more criminal than anybody else is a faulty premise. It is something that is hardwired, not just in law enforcement, Gil. Law enforcement is a microcosm.
1: This is something that that used to come up a lot when we talked about uh, community policing, which everybody talks about how we need more of it, and yet nobody quite seems what it is. I, I remember years ago, part of the conversation was getting police, despite the mobility that gives them, getting them out of their cars. There were beat cops. There were guys who were walking the street and knew the neighbors, knew the neighborhood.
2: That's right, Gil, and that's, it goes back to the, one, the, one of the major reasons why my husband wanted to be a police officer. You have to build relationships that's what this is about. You can't see people as the other and protect and serve them. And historically, law enforcement came from slave catching. I mean, we really have to have a, a, a national history lesson about policing and why the ramifications of the type of policing that we have allowed to evolve over time is still ex- not only exacerbating, but is dangerous to the black community. And another thing that my husband reminds me, which just, it, 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 it It sticks with me all the time. He reminds me, he says, baby, you know, as a law enforcement officer, black man, I got the same training as the white officers. You know, my white colleagues did. And you don't see black officers or brown officers or any officer of color wholesale just shooting unarmed white white people. White boys, you, you just don't, it does not happen. It's not an epidemic. And that, that really got to me because for him, this is bigger than training. He's not saying that folks don't need training, but he's asking the question if, if black and brown and women in law enforcement are not just wholesale gunning down unarmed white white folks, then is this really training or do we have to analyze a psychology and an implicit bias that permeates primarily the minds of white people? Law enforcement officers. That's deep, Gil. We're going to have to have another show for that. But just going to think about that for a minute. Wrap your mind around what I just said.
1: Final thing. If you could name a couple of things that we need to do now to get greater understanding on both sides. If there's a couple of steps, whether giant or baby, that we should be taking right away, where people on both sides would feel, okay, we're getting somewhere. We're, we're actually getting at some kind of, if not solution, at least progress, what would those things be?
2: Certainly number one, I recommend that local local leaders and state leaders take a page from Governor Kasich's book and mine, which is to get community leaders from all walks of life and all generations together and create a, ta- a community police task force that is going to act. Secondly, we have to have a reckoning. Now this is big. This is going to, this has to pierce the national consciousness that we must recognize that the United States of America was built on racism, period, and an anti-blackness that permeates every single aspect of our lives, political, social, economic, racial, environmental. And we have to deal with that. Every time we see these types of shootings at the hands of law enforcement officers against black people, we need to look at the mirror and see ourselves. we got to admit that. That's why we need some truth and reconciliation. I mean, when I look at some of the stats for fatal police shootings in the United States since january of 2015 black folks make up 13% of the population but 43% of those fatal shootings white people 60% 17% of the fatal shootings our hispanic sisters and brothers 12% of the population 33% of those fatal shootings and then others 15 15% of the population 6% of the fatal shootings now i'm not saying the answer is not to fatally shoot white folks or anybody else the answer is for us to recognize what is happening and to both collectively and individually do something about it. You know there was a police chief named Roddy, his last name Chief Roddy, I think he's out of Tennessee, and he said that if you if you don't think that what happened to Mr. George Floyd it was wrong, then I need your badge. Turn in your badge. And so that is a message to law enforcement agencies all over this country. That kind of leadership starts at the top with mayors who control police departments, with police chiefs and sheriffs, all of them. That's why I keep saying law enforcement agencies to get a clue and let it be known they're not going to tolerate this. A lot of work to
1: do. Nina Turner is a commentator for CNN, host of the podcast. Hello, somebody and the mother and wife of police officers. Nina, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Gil, thank you so much for having me. And hello, somebody.
1: You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. On what often seems like a politicized and therefore fairly predictable Supreme Court, the justices still have the ability to surprise their doubters and supporters. Stunning both of those groups this past Monday, the High Court, in a decisive 6-3 decision, ruled that a federal ban of sex discrimination in the workplace also covered gays, lesbians, and transgender people. That was followed later in the week by a decision putting off any move to end DACA, at least for now, protecting people brought to this country when they were children. Jessica Pico is Vice President of Law and the Court at rewire.news and co-host of the podcast Boom Lawyered. Also with us is the co-host of Boom Lawyered, Imani Gandhi, and we will get to her when we get to the DACA decision. Let's start with the employment discrimination decision. This left people on both sides of the political spectrum slack-jawed, more so because the opinion was written by President Trump's appointee, Neil Gorsuch, who turned back the Justice Department view on this issue.
3: Yeah, so um, everybody was very much surprised by the fact that Neil Gorsuch had the majority opinion that said that federal employment discrimination law includes protections for LGBTQ employees, including myself and Amani.
1: What exactly did he say here? Because the decision is interesting. It's short to the point, but even contains unique phrases like a cannon of donut holes.
3: Yeah. What the majority opinion says is very simple and very clear. It says that the language in Title 7 of uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, so that's the federal statute that bans uh, employment discrimination for a variety of factors, including sex, that the language because of sex in that Title VII uh, Act includes discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientations.
1: What's interesting is this is merely an extension of a Scalia decision about discrimination against men.
3: Absolutely. One of the things that about these sets of cases, because really there were three cases before the court, um, is what does it mean to have sex discrimination in the workplace? And Justice Scalia has one of the most uh, notable opinions in this area that involved sexual harassment of a male employee. And so really getting to ideas of uh, sex stereotypes and whether or not discrimination based on sex stereotypes is covered uh, under federal employment discrimination law. And Justice Scalia said, well, of course it is. And Justice Gorsuch, in his majority opinion, really just picked up that mantle.
1: Let's move to that 5-4 DACA decision. Imani Gandhi, what was decided there?
5: The Supreme Court decided that it would protect the somewhere around 700,000 DREAMers from deportation um, in a ruling that said that the Trump administration's attempt to end the DACA program ran afoul of the Administrative Procedures Act, basically said that they ran afoul agency rulemaking laws, that the attempt to end it was arbitrary and capricious, and Essentially, he told the Trump administration that, you know, you can try again, but this attempt is a failure.
1: Yeah. Let's remind people who may forget exactly what DACA is. What does it do?
5: It essentially allows some people who were brought into this country unlawfully as children to stay in this country without threat of deportation. And it has been a number one target of Trump and of people like Stephen Miller from the get-go. They made it one of their very first policy targets and ordered the Department of Homeland Security to begin unwinding the program. And so in September of 2017, the Trump administration just essentially up and decided that they were going to rescind the DACA program. And of course, this caused consternation among undocumented immigrants and and advocates, which prompted several lawsuits and which ultimately led to this decision, which is, truly something that I wasn't expecting. I know Jess wasn't expecting it. And from the reaction from advocates on Twitter, they weren't expecting it either. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that Roberts has stepped into Kennedy's shoes here. I think it's more of Roberts demonstrating that he's a little bit tired of the Trump administration, the Trump administration bypassing normal institutional procedures and rules.
1: Imani Gandhi and Jessica Peekler, are the co-hosts of Boom Lawyered, which comes from Rewired.News. Thank you both so much for being with us.
5: Yes, thanks for having us. It was a pleasure.
1: The hopes are high that the SARS-CoV-2 virus might somehow vanish on its own or mutate into something less dangerous. We have disquieting news, not only from parts of the United States that are reopening, where we're seeing a big uptick in cases, But from the country where we first saw this virus, China, CBS News Asia correspondent Remy Innocencio is in Tokyo, where he has been watching and listening to what's going on. Remy, it's good to have you with us. How are you?
4: Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you.
1: And that's a real question these days, not just something asked out of being polite. (laughs) It seems we have another round, again, centered around a Chinese market, this time, though, in Beijing itself. What's going on?
4: Sure. Well, over the past week, uh, there has been this new surge in China's capital. And this came after nearly two months of Beijing having no new recorded uh, coronavirus infections. This has been centered around uh, not just Beijing's biggest wholesale food market, not just China's biggest wholesale food market, but it's considered the biggest wholesale food market in all of Asia. Uh, Now, more than 350,000 people have been uh, going through nucleic acid tests, and nearly 30 communities are on some kind of lockdown.
1: When we say a market, people in the United States might imagine something like their neighborhood supermarket or a farmer's market, but this market in Beijing is gigantic. I mean, there are tens of thousands of people there. How big is this?
4: Um, 250 football fields in size, not just tens of thousands of people, more than that every single day, and not just within Beijing. You also have to realize that this market supplies food uh, beyond the capital to provinces surrounding this. And that's a concern because we are actually seeing new cases uh, in other uh, provinces in the north and as far away as uh, southwest China uh, to the eastern coast of China.
1: President Xi made a point of saying that Beijing would be a fortress against the virus. Is there any danger this could hurt his credibility? Because back in February, he said the safety and stability of the capital directly concerns the broader outlook for the party and the country. That's when he was originally giving orders about the epidemic. How much of a problem is this showing up in Beijing itself?
4: Sure. In short answer, it can be a credibility problem for Xi Jinping. Now, whether that actually gets out is another question. There is a lot of Um, propaganda, news, spin, if you will, with regards to how every story, of course, is reported uh, inside China, let alone outside China. So um, right now, Beijing's authorities uh, are trying to contain it, uh, the news, as well as, of course, the virus.
1: So here in the United States, as I said at the beginning, we've had an uptick of cases, especially in places like Arizona, Texas, and Florida, as we've reopened. China and other governments may be just beginning to realize we could be stuck with this for a while. What are you hearing about that in Asia?
4: The scientists that I've spoken to over the past four months of covering this have said the same thing. Uh, in January, they predicted, hoping that they were wrong, that um, if this coronavirus infection first wave passed, that they could see. Uh, cities open up and then close down again, open up and close down again. And unfortunately, this is what we're starting to see when it comes to uh, Beijing. I- I've been saying this for the past week, um, reopening risks reinfection. And we are seeing that here. And to your point, we're seeing that in the United States, across many states that quickly opened up. These states were also the ones that are seeing the biggest rises in infections recently. And also, you know... Asia, China were the canaries in the uh, coronavirus coal mine. You know, it happened here in Asia first. The United States and Europe saw what was happening, but they didn't take heed at that time. No one was paying attention to Asia. They thought that it was not in my backyard. Well, tell you what, they should have been paying attention. With that said, with these reinfections and this resurgence here, they should be paying attention even more.
1: CBS News Asia correspondent Rami Inocencio. Rami, thank you so much for being with us.
4: You bet. Thank you. Stay safe.
1: You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America, Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. You've been hearing about Juneteenth, which was this past Friday. CBS News correspondent James Brown has more.
3: Everyone say Juneteenth. Juneteenth. For the
6: last three years, Shantaya and Michael McIntyre have celebrated Juneteenth with their four kids in their mostly white California neighborhood. What is it about Juneteenth? that you want people to know.
3: It's not just a black holiday. It really is a celebration of uh, freedom. And that's what America is about. And so if you celebrate the 4th of July, you absolutely should celebrate Juneteenth as well. And everyone just dropped all their tools.
6: The McIntyres invite their neighbors not only to celebrate, but to use it as a teaching moment.
2: We reached out to the parents, let them know what we wanted to celebrate. All of the parents were okay with that, and they sent the kids down here. A couple of a couple of the parents came as well.
3: I got text messages from the parents and said, thanks for teaching my kid about that cool holiday, and they can't <laughs> stop talking about Juneteenth.
6: Juneteenth stands for June 19th, the day in 1865 when Union General Gordon Granger finally arrived in Galveston, Texas, to announce the emancipation of slaves. Texas had kept approximately 250,000 black people enslaved for two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation became law in 1863. And the man who signed it, President Abraham Lincoln, had been assassinated two months before Granger arrived. Can you imagine? So what Juneteenth is? June 19th is the acknowledgement and yes, commemoration that there were slaves that lasted two more years, and for them, it was a lifetime. Texas Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee has been pushing to make Juneteenth a national holiday for two decades. The potential of having this national holiday opens a whole world of discussion for America, a whole reckoning with a racism and the systemic racism that permeates. Um, the nation. Where do you sense legislatively we are? Are we poised to see this come across the finish line? I do. We we um, are just um, very pleased at the number
2: of co-sponsors and members who are interested in being supportive. In the resolution that we already introduced, we have 204 co-sponsors. It's delayed freedom, but it is the only recognition of the original sin of this nation. So Juneteenth
6: is an ability to tell the story of slavery. African-Americans haven't waited for national recognition to celebrate Juneteenth. Since 1866, parades and barbecues have been a staple of black communities from Houston and San Antonio to Chicago and Little Rock. They have some really big Uh, uh, Juneteenth celebrations, and I would love to go out to one of those because, I mean, there's thousands of people out there. Back in California, the McIntyres feel their small celebration is one way to bridge the racial divide during this tense moment in our history.
3: My husband and I, we took our children to a a peaceful protest, and I found myself walking with a fist in the air. And there was a movement that when I looked around, it wasn't just black people holding their hands up. And so that's why I feel like there is some momentum around Juneteenth.
1: By the way, though federal holidays are created by Congress, they only cover federal workers in Washington, D.C. National holidays are just suggestions, even July 4th. This was America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross.
6: Listen to Blood is Thicker The Hargan Family Killings wherever you get your podcast starting May 8th. Access episodes early and ad free with 48 hours plus on Apple Podcasts starting May 1st.